Uh, the town that I grew up in, Huntsville, Alabama, the truckers felt that they were being left out of the uh, fuel distribution, so they blockaded Huntsville, Alabama for several days. I think it was over, a little over a week and would not let anything in. So they got the attention of people in Huntsville, to say the least. But the reality is that now we are facing something that threatens not our comfort, but our mortality. And this is something that has not happened in decades. From the 20s to about the 60s, we had polio. We had that concern. Uh, we had, in the, the Great Depression, we had poverty and natural disasters like the Dust Bowl, starvation that threatened people. But it, uh, the last real catastrophe, disaster, epidemic that we had similar to this was over 100 years ago with the Spanish flu, 1918. Killed 50 million people worldwide, 675,000 in the United States. That would be the equivalent of 1.2 million today in the United States alone. So that was a pretty major um, situation that caused people to turn to God. My great-grandfather got saved as a result of that flu, came to the Lord as a result of that flu. And so we find ourselves in a place where in, in just a few days we could find ourselves at the judgment seat of Christ, uh, at, at, at the last great encounter. And so we're finding a need to make sure that we're grounded properly. And friends, if there's anything that's important in a situation like this is that we know that Jesus Christ is our Savior. He is all that matters. Jesus is Savior because He's the only way to the Father. And if you've not accepted Jesus as your Savior, I'm going to encourage you to do that. We're going to be talking about that in this sermon. And if you'd like to have more information, contact us. We'd love to talk with you about how you can become a Christian. But today, we're going to be in Acts chapter 17. I want to encourage you to turn there. You know, down through history, Christians have been on the forefront of ministry in um, catastrophe, in disasters, in, in fear situations. And uh, Pastor Kevin sent me a link this past week to a story about when Rome had 5,000 people dying every day in the city, and um, everybody scattered, everybody ran for the hills except the Christians. The Christians were the ones who ministered to the dying, to the dead, uh, burying them when no one else would. And uh, a pagan emperor of Rome is the one who said that their kindness and their calm, their faith in the middle of that situation is what caused Christianity to grow uh, in Rome. So I'd encourage you to check that article out. It's a very short article, and um, I think you'll find it interesting. So today we're in Acts chapter 17. Looking there in verse 1, it says, Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Immediately, we see another of the we-they passages of Acts, those passages which reveal where the writer is uh, in relation to the events recorded by the pronouns that he used. We talked a little bit about that last week. We assume, logically, we feel that Luke is the author of Acts. And when he was with Paul in his travels, he talked in terms of the first person, plural we. When he was not with Paul, which there were a few of those times on these three missionary journeys, this is his second, he used the third person, plural of they. And so as you're reading uh, the book of Acts, I encourage you to look for those pronouns and see which ones you find. And as we looked on our map last, last week, let's look on our map again. We're going to have that up there. We see that they had sailed across the Aegean Sea. There it is. Sailed across the Aegean Sea. They had ministered in Philippi. 
Paul established a church there, later wrote a book to that church by the name of, um, oh yeah, Philippians, that's right. Um, He went from there uh, through Amphipolis is what we're told, and then Apollonia, you see those to the just a little bit southwest of Philippi, and then due west and just a touch north is the town of Thessalonica, which has always been a major city in Macedonia. It was a co-capital of Macedonia. It's still a very important city. They have over a million people there today. And so when Paul went there, he found a synagogue, and look there in verse 2. Paul went in, as was his custom. This is what he did. He went to the synagogue first, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures. Three Sabbath days in a row, he went to them and reasoned from the Scriptures. Now look, it says that he reasoned with them, not in the sense of trying to be, uh, to prove by logic and reason, but in the sense of exchanging ideas, going back and forth. It's the classical definition of the term, similar to the term argument. It's not to get in a fight with somebody, but it's to exchange ideas. When, when God said, come, let us reason together, it's that word argue. Let's exchange ideas. You talk, I'll talk. We are going to come to a conclusion on this thing. And so Paul goes to the synagogue, and for three weeks in a row, he reasons with them, out of what is the only touchstone that, that we can ever safely use as our eternal source of truth, and that is the Bible. Now listen, ours is a reasoned faith in that there are all kinds of evidences, there are all kinds of proofs of the historical truth to what the Bible talks about. And then when you take some of the prophecies and you start to figure probabilities and what are the chances of this happening with one person in history, it just becomes astronomical. And and so we can look at it and say, well, it's reasonable to believe. And it is a reasoned faith. It is reasonable to believe. But (laughs) it is a reasoned faith. And what reason and logic and apologetics can do to get us to a point They can never save us because it is faith that saves us. Reason, logic, evidence can walk us to the cliff, but faith is what causes us to step off that cliff and choose to believe that, listen, what the Bible says God did, what the Bible says Jesus did for us on the cross, that he did it for us, that he did live, that he did die, he was buried, he rose again for us. That is where, where faith takes over. And logic is not what saves us. If we have reduced God to the big giant head so that all we have to do is understand his thoughts in order to be able to be saved, we have raised the intellect to a higher place than it deserves to be. It can get us to the point of faith, but then it is only faith that can save And so Paul is reasoning with them. He is talking with them from the Scriptures. The only thing that matters, this is God's revelation of himself to us. He reasons with them from the Scriptures. And look at what it says there in verse 3. This is all that he talked about. Explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ, the Messiah, to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you, he is the Christ. It is absolutely necessary. Listen, this is the gospel. <laughs> this is it. <laughs> Jesus lived, he died for us. He was buried and he rose from the dead. This is the gospel. And what he's telling the Jews is what we had thought for a couple of thousand years here is 
We thought Messiah is going to show up to save us from, in their current situation, from the Roman Empire. He's going to rescue us and help us establish a kingdom. And what Paul is saying is, he's not here. He didn't come to rescue us from the Romans. He came to rescue us from us. (laughs) He is Messiah of us to rescue us from the flesh that just has destroyed us. And the appeal that he made to the truth of his message was that the Scriptures declared it was necessary, it was absolutely necessary for the Christ to suffer. How can the king suffer? And and, and the Jews, it's understandable that they would come to this conclusion thinking about Messiah, that how can Messiah suffer? No, he's going to rule. But Paul is using Scripture. Wouldn't that have been a fascinating Bible study? Paul is using Scripture to show them, no, Messiah had to suffer. He was despised. He was rejected by men. He was despised. We esteemed him not, is what it says in Isaiah 53. We we esteemed him stricken. We thought he was smitten by God and afflicted. Isaiah 53, 5, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquity. So it was absolutely necessary for Messiah to suffer. That's what we find in the Old Testament. But it also tells us he's going to die. Suffering is one thing. Dying is another thing. Isaiah 53, 9, and they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death. So the Bible, what Paul is doing with the Jews is explaining to them. He's reasoning with them. Look, this is just what it says. How can we get around this? Messiah is going to suffer. He's going to die, but it does not leave it there because in Psalm 16, 10, it says, you will not abandon my soul to death, to Sheol, which is death, You will not allow your Holy One to see corruption. Jesus has been in that grave for three days, man, in a hot environment. That's a long time. But the Bible says the Old Testament and what Paul is showing them, the Old Testament's telling us he's going to protect that body and he's going to raise Messiah from the dead. Now, when Paul, Silas are teaching this, here's the effect that it has. Look there in verse 4, Acts 17, 4. Some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Jews. You remember there are three groups of people in the synagogue. God-fearers is one of them, and so this is the devout Jews. And not a few of the leading women. Well, there are several converts here. And there was a church established in Thessalonica. First uh, Thessalonians is probably the second book, that, uh, second epistle that Paul wrote. So there was a church established here, and this is a wonderful thing, and so everybody's going to jump up and down and be happy about it, right? Except for verse 5. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And here is that green-eyed monster again. You know, it's interesting that Jesus said... I'm surprised that you're asking this question, not knowing the scriptures that you teach. And here we have a group of religious leaders who have been teaching what we call the Old Testament, the scriptures, for hundreds of years that has said Messiah is going to suffer, die, be raised from the dead. And now when Paul comes in, shows this to them, irrevocably, unequivocally, they get angry because why? Because they were jealous at how many people were being taken away from them. Friends, they were not nearly as interested in the truth as they were in control. 
And losing control was something, it was too high of a price for them to pay. So they go to the house of Jason, uh, which is where Paul apparently had been staying, and say they go banging on the door of the manager of the Motel 6 in town and asking, why did you rent your conference room out to uh, these Christians? They're doing nothing but causing trouble. And when they couldn't find Paul, they grabbed the manager of the Motel 6. And they drug him in front of the city council, and here's the accusation. Here's the best they could come up with, Acts 17.6. These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. <laughs> well, wouldn't that be a great thing? <laughs> wouldn't that be a great accusation to have leveled against you? Wouldn't that be a, true, a wonderful truth to have? So in verse 10, the brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea, and when they arrived... What did they do? Go into hiding? No, they didn't get the next Airbnb. They went into the Jewish synagogue. They just kept going, man. They're not going to stop. And I just love that Paul is not going to be deterred. He got knocked down, but he got up again. You're never going to keep him down. He got knocked down. He got up again. For those of you who get that, you're welcome. He went back to doing what he was called to do because he knew this is the only thing that's going to change lives. He knew what he was called to do. He was determined he was going to do it. And he just went back to work. He went to the next town. Where's the synagogue? He preached the same gospel to them. He reasoned with them again. And what were the results? They were a lot a bit different in Berea than they had been in Thessalonica. Look there in verse 11. Now these Jews, the ones over in Berea, were more noble than those in Thessalonica. And here's why. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. What these Bereans did was they took what they were being told, they went home Sabbath afternoon, they looked it up in their copy of the scripture that they had gotten from the Gideons, maybe not. They examined the scripture themselves to see if what Paul is teaching is in line with what the Bible has to say. And friends, this is, this is what Acts calls a point of nobility, a value, a virtue of nobility. They are going to examine this sermon in light of what we already know to be true about God's Word. And here's the result, verse 12. Many of them therefore believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing as, as well as men. They, e they eagerly received the understanding of the word they had been reading for years. And friends, their, their belief is not based on strictly what Paul had to say. Now, Paul came in and talk, taught them. But their belief, no matter how compelling he might have been, their belief was based in the therefore of verse 12. And that therefore is pointing back to the fact that in verse 11... They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. That is the, that's the source. That's the foundation. That's what caused these people to believe. They examined the scriptures to see if these things were so. Therefore, they believed. And friends, it's always going to be in the Bible. We cannot encourage you enough. Read your Bible. Find out. Open your Bible. Find out if what we're saying is true. Because if it's true, it is eternal truth, and it will change your life. It's the therefore of God's word that caused them to believe. And it changed their lives. Now, we have very different responses from Thessalonica 
to um, Berea. And you're going to have those same responses today. There are going to be some who don't want to have anything to do with it. They don't want to hear it. They're going to be afraid of what it's going to cost them. And they're going to argue and cause difficulty. But friends, there will also be those who are going to be eager to hear the Word of God. And so we take it to them. We just deliver it to them. And when Paul had trouble in Thessalonica, he did what Jesus said to do. Wipe the dust off your feet and go to the next town. And so that's what we do. Dear God, please use us. And the interesting thing is that the Bereans were very similar to those people. Remember the woman at the well in John chapter 4? She went out and she visited with Jesus. And he told her everything she'd done. And then she goes running in town to tell everybody in town, this guy has told me everything I've ever done. And so you got to meet this guy. So they go out there. Jesus talks with them. And after Jesus talks with the other residents of Sychar, and they come to a point of faith, they look at the woman who had told them about Jesus, and they say in John 4, 42, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe, because now we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. The Bereans had taken the message. They had, they had studied it in relation to the Word of God that they had known for decades, and they said this is truth. Now, uh, these guys up in uh, Thessalonica, they're going to be people who oppose, and there are going to be a lot of different reasons. But in our chapter for today, the reason the folks in Thessalonica opposed was because of fear. Now, that's what it says. They were jealous and fearful. And so they opposed the message, did everything they could to destroy the message and the messenger, even to the point of, look there in Acts chapter 17, verse 13. And when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea, also they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Have you ever noticed? <laughs> have you ever noticed? Look, when you have a celebrity on trial, and the, the, the TV cameras are there, and the trucks are there, and they're broadcasting to the satellites, and huge crowds of people, enormous crowds of people. My first thought is don't these people have a job? What, what are they doing here? How, how, how can they get this much time off? They're down there for the trial every day. What are these people doing? Do they really have nothing better to do with their time than to go from, what, Ogden to Provo? Really? And, and cause a riot in Provo just like they had caused in Ogden? Don't you have anything better to do? But apparently not. So the church in Berea organized a brute squad, and they got Paul and Surrounding him with a bunch of guys with really thick padded shirts, you know, and got Paul out of town. Look there in verse 15, as far as Athens. But in verse 14, Silas and Timothy stayed there in Berea. They stayed in Berea while Paul was being whisked out of town. But when he got to Athens, he said, I want Silas and Timothy here, and I want them here quickly. And so the bodyguards, the Jason Coddings of this life and the others on the security team went back home. They left Paul alone there in Athens, and now we have the third city of Acts chapter 17. We've had Thessalonica, we've had Berea, and now we get Athens. And while he's there, he wants to get in his 10,000 steps per day. So, look there in verse 16. He starts walking around town. And while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. 
Don't you like that Paul was troubled by the condition of the people that he saw in the towns that he went to? He wasn't troubled about the, the poverty or the violence in Athens because Athens didn't really have a lot of that. He dealt with the circumstance of that particular town, whatever town it was, and the condition that they were dealing with was just severe spiritual ignorance as represented in the fact that they had idols everywhere. So what did he do? Verse 17, he's troubled by it. He's provoked in his spirit. What does he do? Verse 17, so he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Don't you love that? He, he went with tracks down to the marketplace, and whoever showed up, he just started buttonholing them. Man, we need to talk about Jesus. That's, this, this is on it, man. He's, he's willing to do this thing. Verse 18, some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because... He was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. Now listen, we're talking about a day here where death was very common to these people. They, they, they very probably had all seen a dead body. It was common when someone died to lay grandpa or grandma out on the kitchen table and wash them down and dress them. And you're going to take care of this, you're going to take care of this situation yourself. It's a family situation. So most all of them had very probably seen a dead body, but here's what they had not seen. <laughs> they'd seen grandpa and grandma stretched out on the kitchen table. They'd never seen them sit up. So when Paul starts talking about the resurrection, well, this is something new, and this has got to be foreign. It's got to be a foreign divinity. We've never heard of this before. So here's what they do. They took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now, verse 21, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. That's what they lived. That's what Athens was for. If you were a philosopher, if you were a thinker, if you, had somebody, if you were somebody who had questions about something, you went to Athens. And you just went to the Areopagus and you talked about it. Now, the Areopagus was a hill outside of town. I have a picture for you. It was a hill outside of town on the top of which was a meeting place where they got together to discuss whatever philosophy they wanted to deal with for the day. This is a picture that um, when uh, our son Andrew and his wife Natalie were gallivanting around Europe several years ago, they went to Athens. And she sat on top of the Areopagus and took that picture and sent that to me from her phone. Wasn't that nice? I, she knows I love this passage. And she's holding her Bible, Acts 17, and then looking down the hill at the city of Athens. It was just a hill there at the top of which everybody got together to discuss whatever the, the newest, latest craze was. Telling or hearing something new. And they hear resurrection of the dead? Well, that sounds new. So... In Acts 17, 22 through 31, we have another of Paul's 10 sermons in the book of Acts, where he addresses those at the Areopagus concerning Christ. Now look, here's what he does. He finds a point of commonality. He has walked around town, and he wants to witness to these people, but how are we going to do that? He finds a point of commonality with them. So here's what he does in verse 22. Men of Athens, stands up and talks to them. I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, 
I proclaim to you. I'm going to tell you what this is. He took a commonality. He took some point that they could have in common, not in agreement, but in common, so that he could begin a conversation with them. He identified a value that they held, which he could appeal to as a point of common interest. I perceive you're very religious, and this is proven by the fact that you have an altar even to the unknown God. And instead of coming into town and telling them how they were wrong, how everything they've ever believed is wrong, how everything they've ever been taught was wrong, how they are wrong, their parents are wrong, and possibly generations prior have all been wrong, instead of coming into town and arguing with them, he found a point of commonality, not necessarily agreement, but at least something they had in common around which they could communicate. And so he, he latched onto that and said, what therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. Now, how many converts, how, how well does it work for you being belligerent when you try to, when you try to witness to someone? How many, how many hugs do you get at the end of an argument? <laughs> How, how well does putting the stupid and the ignorant in their place work for you? I like what Vance Havner said. He said, you never win a convert at the end of an argument. And friends, we can never argue them into the faith. We can never humiliate them into the faith. We can never intimidate them into the faith. Because listen, whatever you do to get them there, somebody else can do better than you to get them out of there. But if, if their decision to follow Christ is based on faith... That is the gift of God. We can't even brag about that one. It is a gift from God. Then it is His work that has been done in them, and no one will be able to take that away from them. If their relationship with the Father is based in faith, that is a gift that has been given. Faith is outside of us. It comes to us. Romans ten seventeen says, faith comes to us. It comes, and it comes How? By the Word of God. It doesn't come by arguing. It doesn't come by logic. It doesn't come by proving someone wrong. It comes by faith in the Word of God. So when we send people to the Word of God, we are saying, Holy Spirit, please minister to these people in terms that they will understand. And you will never argue someone out of what they want to believe. You know, a man convinced against his will is of the same opinion still, is how the old saying goes. We're told to contend for the faith. We're told to reason for the faith. We're told to argue for the faith in the classical sense of the exchange of ideas. But friends, the changing of the human heart is the work of the Holy Spirit. And there is nothing that we can do to force someone into that. Listen, the Gadarean maniac, I love that story. Jesus encounters the Gadarean maniac and casts all those demons out of him. And a guy comes running. Jesus says, man, I want to follow you. I want to go with you. And Jesus, Jesus looks at it. How many people, when somebody wants to come and join their church, how many preachers are going to say, nah, we got enough. Yeah, just go on home. But that's just about what Jesus did. Because when the Gadarean maniac who had been delivered from all those demons, the ostracization of having to live in the tombs, not allowed into town, chained up by his friends and families. When he's finally set free, he comes to Jesus and says, I don't want to go with you. And Jesus looked at him and said, no, no. You go home and tell what great things the Lord has done for you. And friends, there's no argument against that. There's no argument against that. You just go tell what God has done for you. And so Paul just comes and says, 
let me explain this to you. And you're going to tell people this is what God's done for you, and you're going to explain to them your values and how you got to your values. And, and they're going to ridicule, and it's going to sound like people are um, uh, belittling your past and your experience. And there are going to be some who will do that, but we can't let that get us down. This is the road that God has brought us on to bring us to him. And whether it's someone else's path that, that brought them to Jesus or not, it's, it, it's totally secondary. This is how I came to know Christ. And Christ is all that matters. And I am thankful for the path. So you keep sharing the journey. You keep sharing what God has done in your life because it does matter. So Paul made some interesting statements in this passage. I love this, this chapter. Look down there in verse 26, one of my very favorite verses. It says, and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling places. God determined the times and exact places that we live. And after a lifetime of serving God, David was able to look back over his years of experience in Psalm 16 and say, the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. And friends, when God is the one, he, he, he is the one who has outlined. He is the one who has given us where we live. And he gave us when we live and where we live, including right now in our current situations. He gave us this time, this place to live for a reason. And that is in verse 27 when it says, so that they would seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each of us because in him we live and move and have our being. Listen, God has placed us when we live. He has placed us where we live for the express purpose of causing us to seek him. Now, some of us are seeking him because we love the place that we live and we just go, oh, God, thank you for putting me here. I love being here. It's serving its divine purpose. It was created for the express purpose of causing us to seek him. And if you love the place you live, if you love the folks that you're living with, and it's causing you to say, dear God, thank you, it's serving its divine purpose. If, however, <laughs> you have a problem in any of those areas and you have difficulty with when you are or where you are or who you are around and it's causing you to go, dear God, please get me out of this thing, it's still serving its divine purpose because God created this place, this time for the express purpose of causing us to seek him. And if it is causing us to seek him, it is serving his divine purpose. And boy, he didn't, he didn't change things when it's serving the purpose he created it for. And if, if God is good, which is our starting point in the Bible, Psalm 119, 68, you are good and everything you do is good. With that as my starting point, now teach me your statutes. If God is good, and if God is in charge of when and where, then nothing can come to me that hasn't first come through his good hand. So, his promise is, you'll find me. And then he, 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 he gives us that promise in the scriptures that Paul refers to, Jeremiah 29. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. But then he changes the focus just a little bit. You will seek me, but then in verse 14 he says, I will be found by you. I will make certain that I am found by you. 
It's the grandparent who's playing hide-and-seek with the grandkid and doesn't want to be in the closet all day, so they leave their toes sticking out the door, right? God is going to make certain that we find him. And really, we're not far from him because in him we live and move and have our being. So we can sit back and, and just beg God, oh, God, I want better, I want better, I want better. Give me better than what I have. And he's going, I've already given you best. Now, if the place that you are is not the final place that he has for you to serve, that's okay. He, he's going to provide for that. But friends, in the meantime, we serve him well. We follow him well. Because the place that he has for us is by his divine, intentional provision. So, look there in verse 30. He continues, talking with these folks in Athens. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands people everywhere to repent. In Romans 2.4, it describes God as his kindness, his forbearance, his patience. You remember when Jonah got mad at God because he'd gone to Nineveh and he wanted to watch the fireworks show and Nineveh get destroyed, and then God decided to, um, to forgive them, and that irritated Jonah. Here's, what Jonah here, here's the worst thing Jonah could say about God. I knew you were a gracious God. You're merciful, you're slow to anger, you're abounding in steadfast love and relenting in disaster. I knew that about you. And that's the worst he's got. Boy, that's not, that's not bad if that's the worst you got. But friends, as we look at the kindness, the forbearance, the patience, the grace, the mercy, the steadfast love, the eagerness to relent from disaster, because of all those, he overlooked foolishness. But now he issues a command. And the command is, all people everywhere are to repent. This is the command for now. What God did in grace and overlooking for generations and centuries now he's issued a command. It's time to repent. And friends, in 1 John 3, 23, it says this is his commandment. This is his commandment that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ. And there's a reason for it. Because, verse 31, Acts 17, 31, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. There's a day coming. And like I said earlier, situations like what we're facing today kind of bring that home to us, our own mortality. We, we don't have a guarantee here. And the day is coming when we are going to be judged in righteousness by the one who he has appointed. And here's how we know that. He continues in verse 31. And of this he has given us assurance to all by raising him, here it is, from the dead. <laughs> And with that, a lot of these guys standing on the Areopagus go, I'm out. You lost me on that one. I'm, I'm done. <laughs> but no, this is the gospel. Look there in verse 32. When they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we'll hear you again about this. We'll talk about this a little bit more. And there were some who believed. One of the members of the um, council of the Areopagus got saved. Um, uh, we had a, a woman who got saved. Her name was Damaris. That means heifer. Uh, wonder about the parents' choice of that name there, but, uh, but anyway. Uh, the resurrection was nonsense to these people because they were very familiar with death. But even in that, some, of them, some folks got saved. And here are some interesting things that I see about Athens. I've got five things that I find of interest. First off, he, w he went to the synagogue. He did go to the synagogue. He just did what he 
always did. Went to the synagogue, and in addition to that, in the marketplace every day, he, he talked with those who happened to be there. He was intentional about his witnessing. He was very intentional about it. Wouldn't that have been fascinating to be able to see that? Secondly, he engaged the culture. He engaged the philosophy of the day. Because in verse 18, it says some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. He talked with the philosophy and culture that he found himself in. He didn't talk about what was going on in Rome and Athens. He talked about Athens in Athens. Third thing I find of interest, he never quoted Scripture in Athens. Never referred to the name of Jesus in Athens. And he never left a church in Athens. I think that's interesting. Because in Acts 18, which is where we're going to be next week, he goes to Corinth. And when he got there, it's kind of like he might have learned a lesson here. Because he looks at him in Corinth in 1 Corinthians 1.20. Where's the one who is wise? Where's he just come from? He's come from the intellectual center of the universe, the Greek, the Greek philosophical center of the world, Athens. And he says, where is the one who is wise? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? Where's he just come from? And he says, has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? 1 Corinthians 1, 23, we preach Christ crucified. Listen to what it is. It's a stumbling block to the Jews and it's folly to the Gentiles. He's just come from where they said that's a bunch of nonsense. When we, see, when we see how these cities fit together, when we see how this journey takes place, all this, oh, we get this a lot more now. Now we see what he's referring to. And then finally in 1 Corinthians 1, 26, he, he looks at him and says, I want you to consider your calling, brothers, because not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. Where does he just come from? And so the reasoning and the logic and the discussion that he had in Athens, I, can, I look at this and go, I wonder if he's looking at that and saying, man, it didn't work that well. I, I'm going to learn a lesson here so that when he goes to Corinth in chapter 18, he can write them later in 1 Corinthians 2 and say, when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the, gospel, the testimony of God with lofty speech or with wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I was with you in weakness. I was with you in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but they were in the demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that, here it is, your faith, this is what we've talked about already in this sermon, so that your faith will not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. And guys, if we can, if we can logic them into it, Someone else can logic them out of it until there is an experience through faith, the gift that is given, that changes them by the power of God. All we're doing is talking. But Paul said, I've learned my lesson, and I'm going to come with nothing but Christ and Him crucified. I'm going to share that one message. And friends, listen, it is the power of God at work in our lives. It is the power of God to change lives which is the greatest witness to those around us. And so we can sit back and say, okay, good. Well, I'm just going to let my life witness, and I'm not going to say any words. And that's not what we're saying. That's not what we're saying at all. That's nonsense. What we are saying is that the power of real life transformation is so great that it gives credibility to the words. It gives reference. It gives 
circumstance and context to the words. When they see the power of God to change our lives, that makes it w- them willing to hear the message that we have to bring. This is not saying, oh, don't say anything. No, we got we to witness. But friends, the power of God to change lives. That's where it begins. So we have three cities here. Three cities, three responses. We have Thessalonica. They were not happy. They were mad. They were jealous. They, they created riots, not only in their town, but in neighboring towns. We have Berea, who when they heard the word, they said, man, we want to receive this. We, we've been studying this word for decades. And now that you have given us greater understanding, wow, thank you. And they received the word. And then we have Athens, who said, it's just a bunch of nonsense. Their self-diagnosed brilliance prevented them from seeing the power of the resurrection and the simplicity of the gospel. And all of us are in one of those cities. It's easy to be critical. It's easy to be angry about and jealous of. It is like they were in Thessalonica. It's easy to think it's nonsense. I get it. But friends, for those that are in Berea, can we keep keep focused on this one thing, the gospel? Jesus Christ came to invite us into a relationship with the Father. He died for our sins. He was buried dead and was raised three days later so that we could experience salvation with the Father. Now, here's the situation. It's as simple as this. There is a wall between us and God. That wall has been erected because of our sin. The Bible says God's hand's not short that he cannot save. It's not that he can't reach us. His ear's not heavy that he can't hear. He's got good hearing. Here's your problem. Our sins have separated between you and your God. That's what he said. There's a wall of separation. And that wall had to be dealt with. It had to be taken care of. And if we could have dealt with it ourselves, we'd have dealt with it a long time ago. But we could not do it, and a price had to be paid to take that wall down. And the price that was paid was Jesus on the cross. So Jesus came. He paid the price to take that wall down. So now there's no separation between us and the Father. All that remains is Jesus. And the question every one of us have to answer Because as Paul said, there is a day coming, and it's coming soon, when we are going to have to stand in front of the only one with whom we have to do. We're going to have to answer that question. Do you know Jesus Christ? Because in John 17, 3, it says, this is salvation. This is eternal life. This is the very definition of it. That they know you, the Father, and they know Jesus Christ, who you have sent. That's the prayer of Jesus, man. Jesus is praying for us. He said, I want them to know you. And they can only know you through Jesus. So have you accepted Jesus as your Savior? If not, it is as simple and as eternal as this. God, I'm sorry. I did it. I broke your law. And I'm really sorry. Father, I ask you, would you please forgive me? I believe that what Jesus did on the cross he did for me. I want to ask you, would you please forgive me of my sins? I am going to do what you tell me to do. I just confess that Jesus is in charge. He is Lord of my life. Would you please save me? Friends, if you're willing to pray that prayer, that has eternal consequences. I cannot encourage you enough. Please let us know what we can do for you, how we can pray for you, how we can help you in your walk with God. 
how we can explain to you from God's Word, the Bible, how you can experience salvation, forgiveness of sin, and a good night's sleep. Let me pray for you, and then Sean's going to sing. And then we're just going to fade out. We're so thankful that you came, that you were with us today. And for these that came today, woohoo, that was great. <clears throat> but we're thankful that you're here. And as you're, as you're in your homes, I'd encourage you to pray for one another there. We encourage you to be a blessing to somebody before you leave the building on Sunday mornings. Be a blessing to someone there. Ask one another, how can we be praying? And then pray in your home there. Husbands, I encourage you to do it. Just You're the pastor of that home. Just lead that home in prayer. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for the eternality and the ever-present power of your word. Father, I ask that your Holy Spirit do what only your Holy Spirit can do, and that is bring conviction to each one of us in the areas that we're going to find ourselves, like the Thessalonians, willing to argue and be jealous and fearful and angry about it. Or like the Athenians to say, well, that's just nonsense. God give us a heart like the Bereans to say, what does the Bible say? This is going to be the touchstone of my faith. God, what does the Bible have to say? And then when the Bible says Jesus is Lord, there's salvation in no one other than him. God, we want to give our lives to you. Father, thank you that you are a holy, holy, holy God who has revealed yourself to us in kindness, grace, love, and mercy through the person of Christ. Father, be glorified in Jesus' name. Which way?